This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. For 20 years, I've felt like Molly Worthen and I have lived parallel lives. Graduated college the same year. We wrote for the same publications on some of the same subjects, but I chose to head into church ministry and she settled into the academy and earned her PhD from Yale. Molly is Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and you may have read her work in the New York Times, Slate, or Christianity Today, and elsewhere. She is perhaps best known for her award-winning book, Apostles of Reason, The Crisis of Authority in American Evangelicalism, published by Oxford University Press in 2014. In that book, Molly wrote that evangelicals, quote, craved an intellectual authority that would quiet disagreement and dictate and plan for fixing everything that seemed broken with the world. They did not find it and are still looking. In his critical review for the Gospel Coalition, Al Mohler wrote, quote, This is a book to be reckoned with. In terms of its comprehensive grasp of the evangelical movement, its detailed research, its serious approach to understanding the evangelical mind, Apostles of Reason stands nearly alone in the larger world of academic publishing, any serious-minded evangelical should read it." End quote. Now, he also described the book as infuriating and described Molly's work as sometimes snarky toward evangelicals. Well, much has changed in a decade. So I thought it would be interesting to invite Molly on Gospel Bound to discuss her scholarship, as well as her experience in the church and academy. Molly, thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound. Thank you for having me. Now, Molly, just take us back. What motivated you to study and write about evangelicals? I grew up in a totally secular home about 20 miles west of Chicago in Glen Ellen, Illinois, which is right next to, to Wheaton. I grew up about two miles from Wheaton College, but had no contact with with evangelicals because of my geographical proximity. I, I remember occasionally walking across uh, Wheaton College campus with my parents and they would point darkly to at the school buildings and say they don't allow dancing there. So that was my first impression of evangelicals. <laughs> uh, when I went to college, did my undergrad at, at, at Yale and I took classes in, in history and, and philosophy and began realizing both in my coursework and in meeting a wider range of people from different parts of the country, different parts of the world, 
that for 99% of human beings, religion was this hugely important framework through which they processed reality. And if I wanted to understand the other things I was studying, if I wanted to really understand history or, or politics or philosophy, I had to grapple with religion. I took a couple of classes early on in Russian history. And indeed, my first, my first real intellectual passion in the broad realm of religious studies was Eastern Orthodoxy. I had a really formative experience the summer after my sophomore year. I got some grant money from my college to go to this middle of nowhere place in rural north central Alberta, Western Canada, where I lived in a little French Canadian town, a few kilometers from a community of Russian Orthodox old believers who, if you don't know who they are and you would have no reason to, um, unless you've kind of studied Russian history, you could caricature them as the Russian Orthodox Amish, uh, although that's not quite quite fair, but they, they're, a, they're part of a, um, a diaspora of a, a religious minority who broke away from the main body of the Russian Orthodox Church in the um, 1600s and were persecuted first by the czars and then by the communists and have ended up all over the place and have sought to preserve um, really strict boundaries between their, their own particular practice of Russian Orthodoxy and the wider world. And so this particular community uh, had, had begun in Portland, Oregon, and, and that area found it too American, too assimilationist. They decamped for this much more remote place. I couldn't live with them uh, because of their purity rules, but I lived in the town next to them and gradually became friends with some of the young women who were roughly my age and ended up getting invited to you know, participate in wedding sewing parties and uh, you know, learn how to dress chickens after the men had slaughtered them, this kind of thing. Uh, I got my first experience going to you know, four or five hour church services. I mean, they really, they're very serious about the, the yeah. physical experience of, 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 of suffering for for your faith in, in Orthodox worship. And that, looking back, was my first experience uh, really trying to get as close as possible to inhabiting the worldview of, of someone different from myself, particularly in the realm of, of religion. And I think it, it's what persuaded me that I wanted, I wanted to spend my my intellectual energy uh, in some way learning about religion and, and finding excuses to talk to people in communities that were not my own. I had some kind of twists and turns after that. I had a few uh, internships at newspapers and magazines. By the time I finished college, I had this idea that I wanted to be a religion writer, a journalist, but I didn't really know anything about American religion. I thought, well, I have this kind of, kind of eccentric knowledge in, in particular pockets, you know, Russian Orthodoxy. There's not a huge market, unfortunately, for you know, a mainstream magazine articles on, on <laughs> Russian Orthodox liturgy or, you know, medieval monasticism, which was another yeah. thing I was really interested in. So I thought, well, gosh, to have anything to add to the marketplace of, of existing journalism, I need to learn more about the American scene. I had this vague idea that conservative Christians in particular were getting pretty shallow treatment um, mm -hmm. by the mainstream media. Although I didn't make that observation from a position of any any particular knowledge. I mean, when I began graduate school, I, I kid you not, I, I did not know the difference between a Baptist and a Methodist. I mean, I really knew nothing about American religion. But I went to graduate school with the, the thought that I was not training for a traditional academic position, but rather I was filling the well to be a semi-competent journalist. And so through graduate school, 
I mean, I took classes where I learned things like the difference between a Baptist and a Methodist, uh, as well as going all the way back, right? Because, you know, you can't, can't really understand 20th, 21st century American religious history without, without really doing the whole, the whole span. Um, and along the way, as much as possible, I, I did a little bit of freelance journalism for magazines, looking for connections between my area of study and, and the news headlines broadly construed. Um, and, you know, over, over that uh, experience, I think a few things happened. I, I got socialized into the value system of, of academia, or, or you might say brainwashed if you want to be less generous. Um, and I think really spoiled by the luxury of doing journalism from a perch in a, in a, in a big university where you've got access to, you know, such a great library and so many smart people. And then at the same time, the bottom really fell out from the job market in the world of journalism, even more so Very than it, it had in, in the world of humanities <laughs> academic jobs, which wow, is really yeah. saying something, right? Because the job market in my world now has never been good. We've, uh, we've chosen, so I, we, we chose so well, Molly. Yeah, we did, <laughs> right, right. We love our work clearly because it's, not, it's not, a, not a financially rational. Exactly. <laughs> so, I, you know, long story short, I'm, I, I feel I, I have a kind of hybrid situation now where my main, my main work is, is teaching um, religious, primarily religious history in the North American context, intellectual history more broadly sometimes um, at, you know, a, a, a flagship state university. But as much as possible, I continue my journalistic work. I spend a lot of time on the phone with um, people in the communities I'm, I'm I've been writing about as a historian as well. And, and I'm, I'm really grateful for kind of the combination of the two. Yeah, the Russian part is is another parallel for us because that was transformative Russian literature in my own undergraduate experience as well in their preparing for either an academic or a journalistic life. Um, I mean, Molly, it's kind of a, it's quite a parable of the our religious scene in the United States in the latter 20th century, early 21st century, that you could live in Glen Ellen in a thoroughly secular home right around the corner from Wheaton in what has historically been this kind of evangelical bastion or Republican bastion of DuPage County, Illinois, but has changed dramatically as we've we've both seen there, having lived there for a long time. Um, did you go to Glenbard West? Was that where you did? I school? did go to Glenbard okay. West. All yes. right. Beautiful, beautiful little campus on a hill uh, over there. But I'm just wondering, how was that possible? They're, they're not, there weren't, there weren't Christian students there, or you just didn't meet them at all or just weren't looking for them? I, how is that even possible? Or is that really I, how much things have changed by then? Yes, uh, that's interesting. I mean, there are loads of Christian students. I, I have I have memories of overhearing uh, sarcastic complaining by some of my Catholic friends about okay. CCD and, and things like this. Right. But, right. you know, right. part of it is just the 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 compartmentalized lives that we all lead, but maybe especially teenagers. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I mean, I remember my mother once when I was young making a noble effort to sit me and my brother down on the couch and read to us. I think she, she read David and Goliath. Uh, I, her thinking was, I mean, she, she is, um, I think she would call herself an atheist, but certainly she sees the kind of civilizational and cultural importance of familiar, familiarity with scripture. So I think she was just trying to you know, get, get, scratch away at our complete <laughs> ignorance a little bit. But yeah. somehow, I don't know, I was probably eight. Somehow I perceived it as as the man, like this was an imposition. This was some something 
that I didn't want that was being forced on me. And I think I, I think I literally held my ears. I remember another oh, wow. case where our next door neighbors who uh, were Presbyterian invited us to church. And I think after maybe fending off these invitations a few times, my parents decided we needed to go. And again, I have this vivid, visceral memory of perceiving this as a, as a great imposition on my personal autonomy. And I don't know where, I, I had no, it's not as if I had a kind of bad experience with an overbearing religious relative or something that would have primed me to react in this way. I just did. Uh, I mean, I, clearly I had, I mean, and we'll get into this, but I, you know, I then went on to uh, a life of obsession with the very thing that I was pushing yeah. away as a child. Yeah. Um, my brother's gone in a very different direction. He does not have the same, uh, the same inclinations. Um, mm. But I think, I think though, that when I grew up in DuPage County in Glen Ellen, um, my parents' experience of it was that it, it became more Republican and more conservative evangelical and its kind of vibe mm. um, over the course of my childhood there. And that became even more extreme after I left. And my parents, I think, felt a bit more isolated um, mm. by, you know, kind of the early 2000s um, than yeah. they had when I was growing up. Uh, they mm. think I think they felt the kind of polarization and the um, uh, the inability to to kind of really make connections across some of those lines. And they'd always mm. thought of themselves as pretty moderate politically, but felt themselves to be more and more on the left. So Glen Ellen in a way experienced that story that has yeah. shaped really our whole country over the well, past generation. Not to mention Molly, that was so when you were growing up there, that would have been Henry Hyde's district. Um, yeah. So outspoken anti-abortion activist, then replaced by Peter Roskam, similar uh, characteristic, but then a complete and total flip in this last decade in so many different ways. And so, yeah, I assume this was at the Presbyterian church downtown Glen Ellen that you would have visited or a different. Yeah. Area? On main street Yeah, on main street right there, downtown Glen Ellen. Yeah. You'll have to, the viewers and listeners have to forgive us. I lived at president in Geneva right there in Carroll stream. So right at the intersection of Wheaton and, and Glen Ellen and Carroll stream there for many years. What was your connection then to writing for Christianity Today? I, I was kind of, just kind of assumed that maybe it was just Mark Galley as a managing editor because he lived in Glen Ellen. Was there a different connection? Was it more just academic and journalistic and just just because that was the leading flagship periodical? One of my first big articles in graduate school was a uh, piece on New St. Andrews College and Doug Wilson. Okay, okay, and know that. Uh, that, okay. That, was, that appeared in the New York Times Magazine. And I, I think Mark and his colleagues saw that piece and Got they it. were interested in a piece on Wilson. And, and so they contacted okay. me and then it, you know, it became a, um, a, a relationship where I could occasionally see them in person because my, my folks still lived exactly. in Glen Ellen. I would travel there to do archive work as a graduate right. student in the Billy Graham uh, Center archives. Um, and, and so I went on to write a, a few more articles for them. Yeah. I remember the one about Moeller in particular cover story, if I remember correctly on that one. Um, now let's, let's go back to apostles of, of reason here. So you write that quote, evangelicals claim sola scriptura as their guide, but it is no secret that the challenge of determining what the Bible actually means finds this ultimate caricature in their sizzling and squabbling. Um, they are the children of estranged parents, pietism and the enlightenment but behave like orphans. It's confusion over authority is both their greatest affliction and their most potent source of vitality. 
uh, end quote. Well, Molly, I, I wanted to give read that quote because I think it gives you such a good flavor for the for the character for your writing and for what you're trying to accomplish in this book. But tell us what you mean, especially by that last line, that just dynamic of authority as an affliction, but also vitality. In that passage, I guess I am trying to at least partly offer a summary of the history, uh, the birth of, of modern evangelicalism in the aftermath of the Reformation, the context of the Pietist movement, but also uh, the Enlightenment context. And as a result of this history, I'm gesturing at how I see the, the story of the movement unfolding from there. I think that evangelicals are more tormented than most human subcultures with what I, I see as a universal human problem, and, and that is how different authorities in our lives lay claim on us and, and pull us in different directions. Uh, so I, I think that the foundational moment of modern evangelicalism um, uh, at the intersection of pietist revival and the uh, you know, the sort of efflorescence of the authority of, of internal spiritual experience um, as well as this, the kind of new, um, you know, teeth that science gains in the context of of the Enlightenment and the and the scientific revolution. I think that's is just crucial for understanding everything that follows in the history of evangelicalism. Um, I think that locating one's primary authority as a Christian in in the Bible has a lot of implications. Uh, one thing it, it can do is provide a license to, to break away from wider communities, from a church, from a, a pastor, another source of authority who is telling you things you, you don't want to hear, uh, a message that is in some way at odds with, um, with, with how you experience Christianity. And it, it can be a license to start your own, start your own community. I see that impulse toward schism or toward entrepreneurship too, would be the, another way of putting it as as something that has really enlivened evangelicalism, um, that in the context of American culture and the, at least relatively speaking, free market that we have in our in our religious marketplace compared to many other contexts, this is a major reason for the success of, of evangelicalism. But over the long term, I think it is not always a good thing to be able to break away from people you disagree with from ideas and information that make you uncomfortable. And, and so I, I see that, uh, that relationship to authority and, and, and perhaps it's, it's kind of its power, but also its brittle quality as, uh, as something that has both really served evangelicals, but, but has also been a, a source of consistent struggle. Let's go back. Let's go back to something that you said earlier about your, your experience listening to the Bible of being in church because it just relates to what you were mentioning there about authority. Molly, I don't, I have no idea why I thought this, but I remember sitting in my Methodist church as a child, Madison United Methodist Church in South Dakota. And I can't remember when it was. It felt to me like maybe a Christmas Eve service, but we were fairly regular churchgoers, at least 50% of the time. And I remember thinking, I'm so glad my generation is going to grow up and realize all of this is incredibly stupid and pointless and leave it behind. That was the way I thought. I don't know why I thought that. I don't know where that came from. I don't know what message. Um, I don't know what notion of authority that I had that 
even though, and I think you might appreciate this as a historian, my Methodist family roots go all the way back to the awakenings of the early 18th century. Uh, my, my maternal family name, Daniel, is even, according to Philip Jenkins' understanding and, and, his, and teaching a history of that period, reflective of the revival's influence on families by taking those biblical last names or biblical first names as their last names. Um, and my the, the ancestor who came over in the 1840s to Wisconsin had been training to be an evangelical minister as a Methodist. But somehow in my head, sitting there in church, I just thought it was all incredibly stupid. I'm just wondering, have you, have you thought about that, Molly, of like, where did you get the idea that this was imp- oppressive? Where'd that come from? Where, where, how'd that intuition develop? Because that's that I think, you know, I, I think that's a relatively new phenomenon that 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 intuition that would have been developed there. Where does that come from? You're, you're challenging me because you're suggesting that my reaction had had a lot to do with our kind of generational cultural I don't context. Know. And I, I, I feel chagrined because in principle, I'm a historian and I my brain ought to go there first. But I, to the extent that I've, I have any answer for you, I, I guess I had tended to think about it more in terms of my own temperament. And I was a, I was a child who uh, spent most of my time in my own head and my, my parents didn't, didn't mess with me much. I mean, they, they very rarely made me sign up for anything, only swimming lessons. Cause that was a matter of safety. Pretty much nothing else was I forced to do no piano, no nothing. And so, uh, I think that this was just this was this was the introduction of something that had not really had any presence in my home. Although my father was and remains a, a huge lover of world mythology, so I, I grew up, uh, you know, listening to um, you know Greek mythology, Roman mythology, um, Norse mythology at bedtime as as our bedtime stories, but. Somehow, when the, you know the, the one or two times when when the Bible entered our home, the the, the tenor of it, I picked up something different. Right? Uh, it, this is a this is this is a this is the source of authority that you know um, on once upon a time had a privileged place in this culture and no longer does. It's not it's not you know the the kind of eccentric fairy tale that the stories about you know Loki or you know, Icarus or whatever might be. This is something else. And there's a sort of menace to it. None of this was spoken. I'm totally projecting. Uh, but but you're saying that, you know, even even in a home that was very different, in which this was part of your part of the fabric of life, you also had a, a bit of a spirit of rebellion against it. And maybe that's just why we both became journalists. I don't know. <laughs> that could be what we're talking about here. I don't know. It was just provoked by what you said about authority. That in in that and I think it relates to a lot of the apologetic work that I'm trying to do now is in a post Christendom context, even in an increasingly post enlightenment context. What are the sources of authority? You, you mentioned the universal human condition of these competing authorities. Where do you go? For most of human history, it was fairly simple. Your authority was your community. And it was your family, your tribe, or whatever. That's most of human history. There, we're experimenting with some. We're experimenting with new things here, of there being no clear authority. I was just observing that you and I, being the same age, 
and uh, you know, in similar career paths in some way, looking back, just both had that formative experience of whatever this religion thing is, it's not for me. And it just, it feels wrong. There was just no sense of, of course, this is what my parents believe. It's what my community believes. It's what my, you know, but that, at least in my case, in your case, I do think even what you described though, about your, about how you were parented. Well, that's not a very historical mode of parenting either though, in terms of authority, that, that's a, that's a fairly child directed mode of parenting. That's fairly novel as well. So that could be contributing to it there. Um, just trying to work that through in there. Um, so you mentioned no other experiences going on with the church, though. Just visiting once and having that negative reaction. Absolutely, and oh. I, I felt I remember occasionally reflecting on how uncomfortable I would feel if I if I had to go. I didn't know what to do. Uh, it was it was completely foreign. It's not, it's really not something I thought about until yeah. until I got to college. Did your parents were your parents like? de-churched had they been a part of a church like did they have a story of like we're leaving this behind very and we want to raise our children differently what was was that part of the, the the change or what not not in a prominent way uh my father i think was sent with his uh two younger siblings to presbyterian sunday school okay. at least erratically growing up uh, but he it was not a big part of his childhood. My, my mother's son was pretty secular. The most prominent event bearing on religion that occurred in her youth was the conversion of her younger sister to Mormonism oh. when her sister was 16. And, uh, and her younger sister really um, craved more clarity, um, just a, a, a plan you know, for yeah. how you're supposed to be in the world. And, and uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints really appealed to her for that reason. And I think observing that was made a big impression on my, on my mother and maybe has informed, uh, I mean, both my parents are um, uh, very, have a lot of reservations about organized religion. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I think that that, you know, that moment in my, in my mom's life and her sister's life, you know, was something that, that shaped that. So made a big impression, but a negative one in that case. Overall, that's yeah. fair. Yes. Yeah. So one last question on Apostles of Reason. I could not help but read this book through the lens of this new venture that, uh, that we've launched at the, at the Gospel Coalition called the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. And as an intellectual venture, your your work is certainly relevant to that. Anything that you would encourage us toward or caution us based on your research, because I just you, you do you talk about Francis Schaeffer, you talk about apologetics there quite a bit, certainly about cultural change and sources of authority. Any thoughts there about positive avenues to explore or ones to avoid? Um, just some of those inherent conflicts as we try to work through, you know, how to be both um, both uh, engaged with the culture, but with a belief system that, as we're talking about here, in many ways just feels utterly foreign to the conditions of modernity. Gosh, I almost think I'm the wrong person to ask about apologetics uh, because I, I sometimes think that my own personal experience, which which we'll get into, yeah. uh, and my own reactions to things is actually quite a bit out of step from what I perceive <laughs> to be the broader yeah. trends and the, and the, 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 the questions that more commonly preoccupy 
uh, people who are investigating Christianity or thinking about leaving the church, um, this kind of thing. Uh, I guess I see, I mean, I, I see Tim Keller as uh, such an inspiring model of, of how to pursue that kind of engagement in the, 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 the perfect balance in his writing and, and his public career of humility and, and confidence. And I, maybe this connects with how I've been kind of reassessing my own feelings about Francis Schaeffer. You know, th- I know this is one, this is one thing that Al Mohler was not happy with me about in, in the book. And I have to say, I, I am so grateful to Al. I mean, I wrote that fairly critical uh, profile of him in Christianity Today. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> and I was I was later told that CT hired me to do that piece because they, quote, wanted to smack down the Calvinists. <laughs> I was very flattered. That We're I was... getting real here. This may or may not have been a reaction to a certain previous editor at Christianity Today who may or may not be on this uh, video call right now. <laughs> interesting it's all it's all fitting together it's okay. all i told you molly our worlds are more aligned yeah, than you could even right. imagine so i was i was really i was really surprised and and uh grateful when al despite that he went on to write what was i mean the, the review you quoted briefly from was incredibly generous uh really generous to my book but uh but among his criticisms were i was too hard on on schaefer and i i have been um I went back and read for the first time in more than 10 years, uh, The God Who's There, you know, one of Schaefer's first big books. And I do think that there, there is a real arc to Schaefer's career as a cultural apolo- apologist and a yeah. culture warrior in, in the, yeah. later, the later years, especially mm-hmm. under Frank Schaefer's influence. But in that early Schaefer, yeah. he's, he's more Keller-esque in, yeah. in that, you know, in, in revisiting that book, I, I, I heard in, in Schaefer's account of, of uh, the problems with modern civilization, a, such a sincere um, pain for secular people, uh, people with, with worldviews that, that are not working for them, that, that are as leaky as sieves and they don't realize it. Uh, but there's, there's a humane quality to the conversation that he was trying to start that I think is attenuated in Schaefer's later career, or it gains more of an edge um, in a way that was uh, very empowering for a certain subset of evangelicals, Uh, you know, both those evangelicals um, who were kind of politically activated by Schaefer's later ministry, as well as those who were able to see uh, intellectual careers and, and and academia as open to them in a way that they maybe hadn't considered before he introduced them to the the world of of ideas. Um, but I think that maybe the possibility in that you see in his in Schaefer's early career for for bridge building and sure. the, the kinds of conversations that happened at Legree <laughs> in in the early years with like such a crazy you know amalgam of people you know. Uh, marijuana smoking hippies and you know, right. Timothy Leary and people like this, right? Like that, um, that stops being quite as possible um, in the later years. And, and I think that uh, Tim Keller's ethos is that sort of takes the best of that, of that early Schaefer spirit um, and, 
updates it in a certain way. And, um, you know, I've always admired the way Keller, uh, you know, he communicates from a, from a kind of clear theological, uh, ecclesiological location, but, but he's also, he's also very ecumenical wherever, wherever it's yeah. possible. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's, I, I, I'm glad that, I mean, this, this, this endeavor that you're embarking on, I think is, is really important. And um, yeah. I, the, I guess the last thing I'll observe in my, from my research, and this is the fruit of my journalistic research, not apostles of reason. Some years ago, I, I wrote a newspaper story on the, the movement of Christian study centers on secular yeah. university campuses right. around the country, which you know, began in the 1970s, but it's really, sort of blossomed in the past 15 years or so. Uh, my own school, UNC, um, got a, a study center just uh, not, not even 10 years ago now that's really flourishing. So I spent some time interviewing uh, evangelical college kids who, who run these centers. And they, they spend their time organizing public events and you know, creating a space for students who are Christians, but also trying to do some outreach. And I asked them, do you think about what you're doing as a kind of evangelism? And without exception, they they moved away in in kind of uh, horror at the word evangelism. They wanted nothing to do with attaching that label to what they were doing, uh, and and they I think were reacting to what they perceived to be sort of their parents' generation's approach to evangelism, where you accost unsuspecting strangers on the street corner and harangue them about the four spiritual laws and don't, you know, let go of their elbow until you get them kneeling in prayer. And, you know, that I think that that caricature has always been unfair. Uh, and that actually the history of evangelism is much more sort of humane and complicated than that suggests. But uh, certainly as part of this generation of evangelical college students, broader desire to disentangle themselves from from the mainstream culture's stereotypes about the Christian right and anti-intellectualism and, you know, Christians as intolerant bigots, that has involved a, a, a discomfort with evangelism traditionally construed and really a doubling down on, on relationships, which I think is right. But I do think there's room for sort of initiating the hard conversations when it's appropriate. Yeah. Well, that's really helpful. I, I appreciate, um, of course, you've read my my own book on Tim Keller, where I talk about that influence that Schaefer had on him from those Libri years. But you're you're exactly right. There's a clear departure when you get to the Christian Manifesto years, published there by, again, our Chicago neighbor, Crossway, Crossway Books, there in the early 1980s, uh, where Schaefer is moving in a certain direction over here. And Moeller's somebody... He, he connects both of those worlds with Schaefer, um, the academic world, the intellectual world, the cultural world, but also the very the political and kind of Christian right world, whereas you're exactly right. I mean, Tim Keller is definitely that early Labrie Schaefer, um, not, the, not the later there as well. Um, well, Molly, I, I think there's no other way to, to ask this question, but uh, I think I'm just interested to know how did you come under conviction of sin? And the hope of salvation through Jesus Christ. Talk with us about that, that dramatic change in your life. Yeah, I am grateful for this chance to talk about it because I am still processing it. I, I still feel whiplash. I, I became a Christian last August. I'll just, I'll do my best to tell you what happened. I think, uh, you know, I, I had made a couple of incompetent efforts to earlier in my adult life to get myself churched. 
Um, I, in graduate school, I, I went to uh, the local high Anglo-Catholic Episcopalian parish for a while, felt pushed at a certain point to get baptized there, not because I had even the inkling of um, anything resembling certainty, even about theism, let alone Jesus. I just felt it was something I felt pushed to do. And I thought, well, I'm sick of being a voyeur. Maybe if I start being able to receive the sacrament, something something mystical will happen. And, you know, the rector there was very used to dealing with people in my categories. You might imagine, you know, university town in the Northeast. And we had a lovely conversation about how the creed can be aspirational. I shouldn't sweat it too much. Um, and I think in the high church context, uh, people often have a lot of confidence in, in the power of the liturgy to, to do the work if you participate, which may work for some people. Uh, so I got baptized in uh, 2008 at the Easter Vigil, and it was incredibly traumatic. I didn't really understand why I was doing it. It was a, a very closely affiliated wow. university parish. So the congregation was all my colleagues and, mm. you know, students from the Divinity School who I TA'd. And it, it felt like, you know, being totally exposed yeah. in, in front of my whole professional world. And I, I didn't understand how I was supposed to feel. And I, I knew I was supposed to feel something, but, but, but what? Um, I continued to go to church for some, a little bit of time after that, but fell away and you know, have been in a, a coasting along in a state of mildly dissatisfied agnosticism uh, until last year. I think I always vaguely thought this isn't this isn't sustainable over the long term. And at a certain point, like surely I'll I'll get my act together and I'll probably become Catholic or like you know some variety of Anglican something, something respectable. Something, something respectable was exactly what I was going yes, to say. Definitely something respectable. <laughs> Uh, I had, I should say, I had like my first love affair was was the Eastern Orthodox. Right. Like there, it's a bit like trying to become a Jew. I mean, it's so yeah. ethnic, very ethnic. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I, I just couldn't break break through, and and was you know incompetent in my own efforts. Uh, so you know, fast forward to early 2022. I, I guess in retrospect, I had been some the what uh, the I guess I should say the Holy Spirit was sort of working on me a little bit. I had found myself listening on audiobook to C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, okay. um, which I picked up just because I thought, you know, I I study American Christianity. I ought to be familiar with this. I I liked C.S. Lewis as much as the next person. I will say. I was never someone who loved mere Christianity. It was kind mm -hmm. of it, it, it was a bit lost on me, but I picked up the Space Trilogy. And I think precisely because I thought, here I am reading, this is a work of science fiction. I mean, yes, it's Christian, but it's primarily a, you know, it's a fun, it's a fun read. I didn't perceive it as, a, as an apologetic work. I didn't have my guard up. And that sequence of books really struck me. Um, the, the first volume, um, Out of the Silent Planet, in its characterization of this pre-lapsarian world uh, and its portrayal of 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 angels it, it just it, it prompted me to, to think about sin and 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 think about some of the claims of the Christian story you know in a way that arrested me uh, with new power Paralandra the second book has I think the most disturbing portrayal of Satan mm. maybe in in all of 
English literature. I don't know. I mean, it, I'm more so than Milton, certainly more more than Dante. Um, hmm. I I mean, I the the portrait of Satan in that book kept me up at night. And then the the, the third book, um, that hideous strength is this brilliant takedown of the idols of academia. And of course, Lewis was describing, you know, uh, Oxford circa 1950, like yeah. his world, but it, like not that much has changed. And it just really, it really hit home. So I was, I was just sort of, I, this was like percolating and I didn't really have anyone to talk with about it. So I, I began um, doing reporting for this article that I had pitched to um, a local, a local magazine that covers North Carolina affairs called the assembly and pitched them an article on the summit church and JD Greer, uh, uh, in, you know, early 2022. Um, because this is a, this was a church that I always wanted to learn more about. I'd been, uh, aware of the summit, um, in, you know, from the beginning of my time teaching at Carolina, because they've got a big presence on UNC's campus. I noticed their, their stickers on my students' laptops, kind of curious mm. about them. I knew that J.D. Greer had just stepped down from his term as SBC president. So I thought, well, now's a great time to write about him because it's like way into this bigger story of all the stuff going on in the SBC. So I started doing my reporting. Um, you know, I, I took a long time to get on JD's calendar. You know, I had to wait, wait several weeks. So in the meantime, I was just interviewing staffers and, and people who worked for the church in various capacities. And I was really struck from the beginning of my reporting by the Summit Church's obsession with evangelism. I mean, even by the standards of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is not a denomination that takes missions lightly, I was like, holy cow, like, this is something, this is a different animal. These people are just obsessed. They're just, they've, they've founded like 500 churches, you know, worldwide. Uh, you know, every service ends with, you know, the, the benediction, you know, you're, you are sent, like, it's just relentless. And it, it made a, it made an impression on me, but it wasn't, it wasn't the ugly evangelism. It, it because I would have these, long conversations, especially with some of the folks involved in their college ministry about how they talk to, you know, college students, especially about human sexuality and how they talk to gay students and transgender students. And I just, I was really impressed by, by their open-mindedness and their humanity. So I went into my conversation with JD with lots of questions. We, you know, we had a great conversation, uh, and I guess in the course of that conversation, I, you know, I, I mentioned that I was an unbeliever. I, you know, I think I said at some point, you know, I, it would be so nice to be a Christian. Like, I wish it were, I wish it were true. <laughs> and I, and I remember he sort of like cocked his head, like it, like I could just see sort of the radar turn on um, in a way that in, it was like slightly unnerving. Um, but we moved, we sort of moved on. And I, I'll say too, that, you know, in my 20 years as a, historian and journalist who focuses primarily on evangelicals. Um, I mean, occasionally, I, a source at, at the end of an interview, a, a source would would ask me about my own spiritual beliefs. And I'm always open. And I always say, you know, I'm a, I hate the word seeker, but I would end up using that word. And, and the most they would say maybe would be like, oh, well, you know, I'll be praying for you or something. But but people never pursue it. And I, I get that. I mean, it's, you know, it's, you don't want to seem pushy or rude. Uh, now, we, I, I did make a, a comment at the end of my conversation with JD where I said, you know, if I, if I ever become Christian, like, of course, I'll become Catholic. <laughs> and that really agitated him. 
said, he said, well, you know, if it comes to that, just promise me you'll, you'll give me an hour of your time to, to try to talk you out of it. But we parted on, on very, you know, very good terms. And then um, he followed up with a nice email uh, a few days later, just saying he enjoyed the conversation and, you know, making some comment like, uh, you know, you're, you're welcome to, you don't have to simply come to our church when you're on assignment. And he, he referenced C.S. Lewis, you know, he made, he made a remark about the hearing the, I think he said something like the, I, you know, the, 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 I can hear the padding uh, footprints of, you know, Aslan coming up behind you or some like very corny (laughs) evangelical line. I'm sure sure you all use like all the time. Um, And I wrote back and I, one of the things I said was, you know, forget, forget the Narnia stuff, like actually space trilogy. And, you know, if next time you're dealing with a person in my category, Mm -hmm. tell them to read the space trilogy. It's, It's so interesting. And this sparked, an extensive email correspondence that rapidly began circling around the, uh, the, the, the historical claims of Christianity. And I found myself floating to him the, the kind of standard questions that, you know, he and people, people in his role have heard a million times about, well, why, why are your miracle claims any more plausible than the Mormons or the Muslims? And, you know, why should why should we take any of these accounts of the resurrection seriously? And to my astonishment, I would receive and reply these very long, uh, detailed, well sourced, you know, in some cases footnoted email responses, taking every question I asked extremely seriously. Sometimes he would write back and say, you know, that's a really good question. I want to I want to go look up a few things and talk to a colleague and I'll get back to you. And then he would, you know, a few days later, he would follow up with a really thorough response. And and it, it dawned on me. Well, a couple things dawned on me. One, that I was being evangelized <laughs> and that it was the first time in my in my life when I had I'd ever actually been evangelized. Uh, second, this is a little awkward because I was still trying to write this article yeah. right, from a from a position of relative objective, you know, journalistic distance. So I had to sort of keep the conversation at bay a little bit. But also, I was really excited because I, I realized as we began having this conversation that I had all these questions and that no one had ever come alongside me like this. And made it clear that they were not going anywhere. I mean, I was just, I was flummoxed, right? Because he's like this fancy pastor who's very busy, but it was just very clear. He was, he was, he was going to answer every question I had. Uh, and we also, I mean, it, it became clear too that we were also becoming friends, which is so important. So, I mean, as much as my story is really a, a super nerdy, cerebral one that like involves reading a lot of books and stuff, it all happened in the context of, of a friendship where we didn't have to be, you know, kind of hammer and tongs arguing all the time. Um, we could sort of tease each other and, you know, make fun of each other and and openly acknowledge the, the inherent awkwardness of, of the evangelistic relationship, <laughs> yeah. right? Like being able to talk about that and, and laugh about it together was really crucial. So at a certain point, I mean, I, so I, you know, I, I finished the article, uh, you know, it was uh, not hageographic, but not, so critical that it destroyed all my friendships. Well, Molly, it was very different from your previous work. Really? 
Well, I'm just well in the sense of the the molar piece felt like it was being written through a filter. The Greer one felt like this was something that he would identify with. That's what it felt like differently journalistically. It was sort of like, oh, I recognize myself in that. Not because the, not because there's not a place for being critical, but because I think as journalists, we want people to be seen as they are, and we want people to be able to, at some level, understand why they view things a certain way. We don't necessarily want them to sympathize, but we want to engender some understanding. Of course, you do that as an academic as well. And I felt like it is so rare in journalism to read something that is that insightful and that humane, where I felt like that's, that's my heart. Like that, that, that's what I, that, that's what I feel. That's what I want people to know. It's just rare for somebody to be able to do that um, in the way journalism works today. Like I said, not because there's no place for criticism and object, you know, objective analysis. Most of important. I felt like you were, you were being, I mean, I guess part of this goes back to my own views about journalism that it's difficult to be objective, but we can all be fair. It just felt like an incredibly fair and humane treatment of him that was unfiltered from a sort of vantage point of implied unspoken skepticism which colors almost all journalism about religion i appreciate that very much i, I wonder if i i, I was i mean i i always I, I think have made an effort to to step into the vantage yeah. point of people i'm writing about but i was because of where I was personally, I was really trying it on in, in a new in a new way, yes. in, in a maybe a deeper way. Yeah, and that could not help but inform the way I told the story. Uh, so you know, once once that was kind of behind us, I, I asked JD, you know, just give me some homework, like, tell me oh. some books to read, because um, uh, that's how I that's how I get into things. Yeah, and he. Well, the first thing he did was to flatter me. And he, he told me he consulted Tim Keller for advice <laughs> on my case, which I could, I, I, it was very savvy of him. So I was like, oh, these two fancy guys are so, you know, so interested in compiling this bibliography for me. I better, I better take this seriously. Uh, so he, he set me to work on um, N.T. Wright's giant book on the resurrection, Resurrection of the Son of yeah. God, um, okay. Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. <laughs> Uh, also, I mean, I had read some Tim Keller, you know, just yeah. kind of as a reading him, you know, from the point of view of a scholar, um, but hadn't really engaged with his apologetic work. And, and, and so I read Reason for God okay. and spent the next few months, ah, I mean, it felt like doing another master's degree. I mean, yeah. I was just, I was, I was just obsessed. I still am. I don't really read anything else yet. I mean, I'm still sort of constantly, uh, reading apologetics and, uh, trying to get myself up to speed and all the all the kind of spiritual questions that I I feel I'm behind on, but I was keeping. I'm not really a diary keeper. I'm not that interested in usually. I'm not that interested in like my own thoughts. But I found that I had to start keeping a very intense journal, mainly as a way of synthesizing and, and processing the conclusions I was sort of reluctantly coming to. And, and finding, you know, especially finding N.T. Wright's account. I mean, his, 
is very, this is a very detailed, many of your <laughs> listeners have probably read it, but it's like 800 pages. It's a very intense, like in the weeds study of pagan and second temple Jew Jewish milieus um, seeking to explain what the idea of resurrection did and did not mean uh, to the immediate predecessors of the first Christians. And like, what's the intellectual cultural landscape in which these people were, were drawing? And you know, he argues that coming back from the dead is not something that dead messiahs did at right. this time when there were lots of self-nominated saviors right. running around. And certainly it's not something that Jesus' followers would have expected. Mm -hmm. And he, he argues that, you know, if we had only the empty tomb or only Jesus' appearances by themselves in the historical record, uh, that would not, you know, have yielded this early Christian belief in the, in the risen messiah but that there's there are all these reasons to take very seriously the combination of of those two, um, and that the resurrection becomes this very reasonable explanation for their belief. And he persuaded me that attempts by you know people he calls kind of post enlightenment scholars to mythologize these stories, to read them as later Christian beliefs, you know, imposed on the past, to say that the witnesses in the gospels engaged in, in wish fulfillment, you know, based on dreams or special feelings they had they had about their experience with Jesus, that all of this is really what C.S. Lewis would have called chronological snobbery. Yeah. And it, it doesn't take seriously the, the sophisticated way in which first century Middle Eastern people navigated their world and, and their worldviews. And I felt, um, I felt really personally indicted as a historian. I had always thought of myself as very committed to t taking historical subjects seriously. Like this is the whole reason I do this for a living, um, that I believe that these these people, well, we're not superior to them. But reading N.T. Wright uh, made me realize that I had been, I had been engaging in a certain degree of chronological snobbery. And I was, I, I was reading him and kind of believing uh, biblical scholars alongside the, the very skeptical end of New Testament studies, you know, really trying to put those, you know, two clashing um, approaches to the mystery of the resurrection in conversation. And I, I was increasingly perceiving among the more skeptical scholars, I don't know, a, a posture toward historical subjects that, that troubled me. And I became persuaded. I mean, Richard Bauckham's book was very helpful. Later on, I read uh, Craig Blomberg's big book on the historical reliability of the mm -hmm. New Testament, which was really helpful for me. Um, so, I, you know, I was just sort of writing, writing all of this down, also reading a lot of cosmology. So kind of trying to, trying to get at this from a couple angles, focusing on the historical claims of the Gospels, but also the big questions, like, is there even a God? And, and uh, probably the most important book I read on that front was um, Francis Collins's book, The Language of God, okay, yeah. which made a huge impression on me, partly because he, he very effectively lays out some of the arguments for, you know, a theistic interpretation of the Big Bang and the fine tuning of the universe and so forth. But really, it's the autobiographical portion of that book that hit home for me. I, of course, knew about Francis Collins, um, but I had always assumed that he grew up in a Christian home. And when I read that, in fact, he did not, that he, he converted as an adult in medical school here in Chapel yeah. Hill at UNC. Uh, okay. He, he was living on my street you know, oh, when this happened. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that made me, I had no choice but to hear him and read him differently. I would say that if you if you had asked me uh, you know a year ago like what's your worldview um, I mean I, I had I had for some time at that point 
been committed to saying, well, I'm, I'm a pragmatist and my, my intellectual hero is William James. Sure. And he's still one of my intellectual heroes. Uh, so that is, I, I thought of myself, I still like to think of myself as someone com- committed in a sincere way to engaging with new evidence. And uh, I, don't, I don't possess the truth. Truth is this asymptote that we can never fully get to, but we can get better and better at approximating it. Uh, you know, the more information about our world we assimilate. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I found myself kind of creeping toward this point where I was, I was going to be more than, you know, 51% persuaded that the, the Christian account of the resurrection is the best is the best answer we have. But I couldn't, I couldn't believe that a person could convert just by reading a lot of books and going through a lot of footnotes. So this whole time I was, I mean, I I was praying. I would have these, you know, conversations with JD, occasional Zoom, Zoom calls with Tim Keller, who was super helpful. And they were like a great counterpoint. So, you know, JD is a classic Baptist. So probably every third conversation would end with like a personal altar call. If Jesus showed up right here, what would you say to him, Molly? Uh, Whereas Tim's approach is like very different, you know? Um, So I remember in our first conversation, at the end of it, I told him my whole story. And he's like, you know, Molly, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, you might, you might just stall out again. I don't know if you'll become a Christian. <laughs> like, I almost wonder if he was using reverse psychology. But they were very a studied were, nonchalance. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so the other thing I was continuing to do was go was worship at Summit. Okay. And this is a big deal because you have to understand. My whole adult life, I've been a giant high church snob. Like, you can't exaggerate. <laughs> You can't, you, you cannot exaggerate how, how snobby a high church person I always was. And I was, I was always certain that that, that, that was the flavor of Christian I would be if I ever managed to become yeah. a Christian. Yeah. Um, but I, I see now, and, and I'll, you know, when I look back at Apostles of Reason, like for the most part, I think it's a pretty empathetic book and, uh, that is not, I mean, I know Al found it snarky. I think for the most part, it's really not snarky, but there are some <laughs> exceptions to that. And one is the couple of pages that in which I describe seeker sensitive megachurch worship, which <laughs> is not a sympathetic pa- passage no. of the book. <laughs> so here I found myself sort of inexplicably drawn to worship at like the, I mean, it's summit the, the mothership in North Raleigh, you know, because there's many campuses, the mothership yeah. is like the platonic ideal of, <laughs> of a suburban, you know, Southern Baptist megachurch. Uh, and it's freaking awesome. I mean, I think for me, well, there's a few things going on here. One is I realize uh, that for a person like me, who's a historian, uh, there's a way in which the liturgical experience of uh, high Anglo-Catholic worship gives the mind so many things to do that aren't Jesus. So my previous experience of church, I mean, this sounds ridiculous to say, but I do, I do think this is accurate. My previous experience of church was just not, I wasn't thinking about Jesus. Like I was just, I was thinking about Thomas Cranmer and what a genius he was and the book of common prayer and the poetry and the stained glass windows and, and all of that. And there's a way in which mega church worship you know, the, the very simple, but kind of theologically to the point hymnody, uh, you know, the, the intense 40 minute sermon, deep dive, 
it just, it, it helped me focus on what I needed mm. to be focusing on. Also mm. the, the sort of giant anonymizing context yeah. of the mega church was exactly what I needed. It was, it was mm. this perfect combination of anonymity. Like I could go, it's dark. It's so loud. You can't even hear yourself singing. No one knows who you are, except that I was becoming friends with the pastor. So when I could mm. work up the nerve, which was not every time I could go, go down front after words and like check in with him. So like, it was sort of this combination of friendship and anonymity on, on my terms. And I should say too, that the, the crucial intervention that, that JD made for me intellectually, that made it possible for me to even have this process was to help me see that I had in my previous efforts, half-baked as they were to investigate Christianity I had been, I allowed myself to be overwhelmed by things that weren't the central thing. So if you're mm. looking at converting to Christianity from the outside as a fully formed adult, you're not doing it in the context of a family, it's a lot to take at once, right? So there's all the Jesus stuff, but there's lots of crazy stuff in the Bible. There's all the end times, yeah. you know, prophecies, yeah. heaven and hell, you know, the, the sexual ethic that is so at odds with everything our current culture says. It's, it's so much at once. It is overwhelming. And you might begin to make baby steps on one point, but then you're like, oh man, but all that other stuff is so bananas. How I can't do this. I'm paralyzed. What JD helped me see was that it, it stands or falls on the resurrection. And I could, I could agree to struggle with all the other questions. Like they're important for sure, but they're not the main thing. I could agree to struggle with them and that it's all about Romans 10, 9, right? I mean, it, it's all about confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that he rose from the dead. And I could, and I could do that because I'm, I'm a historian and it turns out, and here again, I feel so, I mean, I guess every conversion is a series of epiphanies. Once you've had the epiphany, you're like, how could I have ever been so dumb, right? <laughs> so this is in that category. I mean, here I am a historian of Christianity, like certainly not a first century specialist, but yeah, a historian of Christianity. And I had always conceived of myself as unusually open to the claims of Christianity, sincerely mm. open. But I only realized in this process last summer that I really had not been, and that I, I had never, there were all these resources for seriously investigating the, the claims of this religion, which is unique in that it, it makes this singular historical claim, and that that is everything. And there are the tools available to really engage with it and make up your mind about it. And I had never done that. And I felt kind of ashamed of myself. And, and so, you know, I never, I, over those months, I was, I was praying for some sort of, you know, warm and fuzzy mystical intervention. And it didn't happen. I just got to the point in August where I thought, well, gosh, if I am a consistent pragmatist, I have to admit that I have gotten over that line of uh, the resurrection being the best explanation for the historical evidence we have. And if that's true, I have to change my working hypothesis of the universe. Mm. And so I went from, oh, there was this weekend where I switched how I was praying, you know, in private from praying basically simply for God to show himself to me to just seeing what it was like to say, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. And then, you know, I, I met with JD the following week. And I remember that weekend, I, was, I, I said to my husband, 
I'm just, I'm feeling pretty stressed out. Like, I, I think I might be a Christian. And he said, well, why are you stressed out? Like that, that's not a, I mean, you don't have to go around wearing a sign, you know, just, you know, what's the big deal? And, and I said, you just, you don't understand when you're dealing with these Baptist, you know, mission-minded types, like you can't, it's, it's not, it is a big deal. Uh, so yeah, so I ended up doing, you know, making it official by doing the prayer in front of a Christian notary in the form of J.D. Greer in his office at the end of August. And I got myself properly baptized. Okay. This is where we got, this is where we got to stop Molly. Okay. Okay. All right. So you got to tell us about the baptism. You've been kind enough to share with me your diary entry about this. You've got to tell us about the baptism. This is amazing. Tell us the story. Uh, I mean, I, gosh, is it, well, it was amazing to me. Uh, I, I will say that in the, in the spring, early in the process, I could kind of see where it was headed. You know, um, it wasn't there yet, but I was like, wow, I can kind of see where this train is going, but there is no freaking way I am getting rebaptized. I've been baptized once <laughs> in a respectable fashion <laughs> You know, by a and guy it was in a traumatic. dress, and and a guy in a dress, and it's totally traumatic. <laughs> right, but at least it was respectable. Right. And I remember, I so in my in my guise as a reporter, I had covered Summit's big Easter service, and last year they rented out a local amphitheater. It was like sixteen thousand people, and they had the you know the giant jacuzzi sized tanks down front, and people lined up to answer the altar call and wearing the church issued, you know, black t-shirt and shorts, Jesus in my place. And I was like, that is, that is just so gauche. Like I can never, but oh, I mean, this is, here's what happened. I mean, that my, like my, my short summary of the whole, this whole business is that, that God read apostles of reason. And he was like, I see how this has to go down. And I know exactly the way this girl has to be humbled to cut her down to size a little bit and i have exactly the guy for the job like the holy spirit gave jd my file it really feels that way so if it so by august i had changed my mind about the baptism i felt that it was the necessary step of obedience i'd also just come to really appreciate how straightforward summit is like my whole feeling about the jesus in my place shirt changed from you know, derisive snobbery to, yeah, that's like the point that that's, that's it. So I, you know, found myself in the unexpected position of, you know, standing on stage while the worship band was playing, getting into that chlorinated tank with the former president of the SBC and getting baptized. And it was frankly a more, I know, that Baptists don't like to invest a lot of sacramental significance <laughs> into baptism. But for me, it was a much more sacramentally powerful experience than my high church baptism years prior. Um, it, it, it felt it was the closest I've yet gotten to, you know, the, the kind of warm and fuzzy feelings that I, I imagine, you know, mature Christians have all the time that I'm jealous of. But, you know, I still, I still wrestle with, with doubts constantly all the time. And, and it's not like I got to a position of, of certainty. Um, one book that really helped me 
articulate my own frame of mind was Sheldon Van Auken's memoir, A Severe Mercy. Uh, it came out in, I think, the 1970s. It's an old book, but kind of a classic. Uh, he's, a, he's an American um, academic who writes about his his time in, in England, getting to know C.S. Lewis. He and his wife convert. And it's also about his wife's death at a young age. But much of it's about their conversion. And he talks about the feeling of being on a kind of an island and looking across the chasm between himself and Jesus and the claims of Christianity and focusing for a long time on that chasm and what's going to be involved in jumping across that intimidating chasm. But then he realizes that all of this time, a chasm has opened up behind him and that if he doesn't become a Christian, he can't just stay where he is. He, he has to jump back. He has to actively reject Jesus and recommit himself to this worldview that is no longer satisfactory. And that I'll say that sort of a piece of this that we haven't talked about that was happening in parallel. I, I mean, I think part of why I was open and kind of already walking in the direction of Christianity before all this happened is be because I've, I have become increasingly, um, I don't know, dissatisfied and alienated with sort of the aspects of the world I'm in and, and uh, secular academia. And, and I came to see that I was treating secular academia as my church and wanted from it things that it cannot deliver. Um, and coming to that realization, that was sort of a, the push factor that complemented these pull factors, you might say. Hmm. Well, let's uh we've got a little bit of time remaining and I do want to talk a little bit more about that. Um, let's start with this though. First, are your friends and family and colleagues happy for you? What's their feeling? Gosh, well, you know, it's, it's been hard for everybody. Uh, I'm, I'm, um, the only Christian in my family. I, I have, uh, still very few Christian friends and, uh, I did feel, I mean, I began to really reckon with that um, as I was going through my conversion process it, because it, it, it was very lonely. And I still feel pretty, pretty lonely. And it, it's been kind of, it's been a little bit traumatic for, for them and for me, right? I mean, to go from um, being epist epistemologically aligned and occupying the same framework for deciding what's important, deciding, you know, where you, where you find evidence and how you interpret that evidence to being uh, in quite radical disagreement on these fundamental metaphysical questions is a, is a startling thing. And, you know, it's not that I'm surrounded by atheists who are, you know, kind of always in a very aggressive anti-Christian posture, it's more that, you know, I think a lot of people in my milieu are, you know, kind of comfortable just letting these questions ride and, yeah. and not really investigate them. And, you know, I was surprised by how many conversations I had, would have with colleagues who I always thought of as totally secular. I mean, these are people who had never, never said anything to me that would indicate any interest in religion. And they would say, oh, yeah, of course I believe there's a God. How can there not be a God? And I would say, what do you mean? I mean, how can you just let that sit? Like, don't you want to know what's going on? Don't you want to know what's true? And I, I've realized too, I'll, I'll say, you know, 
it's not like I then turn and, and have conversations with a few Christians I know, and it's all, you know, strawberries and buttercups and, and total like mind meld, because I, I, I feel in many ways, like I'm a space alien among Christians, too. Um, most of the Christians I've come to know are people who grew up in a church, many of whom never really had a period of significant doubt and wrestling, um, certainly, you know, didn't have to go down the path of like, very intense, you know, note taking research, you know, spending weekends on, you know, the academic journal databases, reading the round tables <laughs> on MT Wright's resurrection book, which I did. It's, I recommend it. It was a very fruitful weekend. Um, like they, they're like, what, what, what's wrong? They're not, they're not preoccupied with the same questions. And I find that frustrating because I just think, how can you, how can you soldier along in this thing if you haven't really investigated it? Um, and so I, I've, I have had the experience of feeling kind of a disconnection with the whole span of most people I talk to about these things. And I, it's made me, when I talk with Christians, it's made me realize my own intense spiritual immaturity. And I'm still kind of hanging on, you know, God made a path for me to become a Christian based on who I am, which is this, you know, sort of very not postmodern, but deeply modern um, you know, empirically minded yeah. historian who likes to have the illusion of control by reading a lot of books about something. And, and he made a path for me to become a Christian in that way. But obviously, there, there's so many other dimensions. I mean, here's the other thing, too. I mean, I finally had to accept what a number of Christians, Tim, Tim and JD among them, said to me, which is, you say you are continually, you know, praying for more of feeling of assurance and 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 this kind of subrational confidence and this mystical sense, and you're not getting that. Well, uh, have you considered that what you are asking for is actually the relationship of faith, and that just as you know, you cannot become friends with a, a human without taking a certain risk and investing yourself um, before having the experience of that relationship. Maybe you have to take that leap. Um, and so, you know, that was part of my, part of what kind of got me to the point where I could become a Christian. Um, but I still feel sort of defective, you know, I, 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 I still, and I know like a lot of it is just about patience. And I think I cope with that insecurity and that fragility by probably talking more than I should, especially to my poor long suffering husband um, about, <laughs> about the claims of Christianity and forcing some Keller books on him in a way that is not always productive. And he's a historian as well, but he, he was not as enraptured with N.T. Wright. Um, he grew up Catholic. If I had, if I had done the respectable thing and become a Catholic, a lot of this would, would be easier. I will. And this is maybe the last point I'll make about friends and family, which is that um, it is very hard to get over the hurdle of the Southern Baptist megachurch context in which this all has happened in. And, um, many, many people in my world are very focused on that and want to know why, why that it's so, it's so baffling. Um, and I mean, on one hand it's incidental, but on the other hand, it's actually for my story, it's very important. And I, I think actually I could not have become a Christian in any other context, but, but at the same time, it's not about the Southern Baptist convention. Um, it's about, it's about the resurrection. And, you know, I, I have, I have said to my husband, like, I wonder if, if part of what's going on is that it is easier to stay focused on the kind of culture wars context 
than to focus on what has actually happened, which is that, you know, this, this person that you've spent your life with, that you are, you know, really well with whom you have always occupied the same epistemological framework has suddenly decided that this guy rose from the dead and is the son of God. And that's much harder <laughs> to talk about. So we're, you know, it's still early days and we're all doing our best, but it's kind of, it's, it's been hard. Well, I do want you to know, Molly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you're, you're, you're not remotely defective <laughs> just as a brother in Christ and, and, um, friend here. I just, you're, you're not remotely defective there. I mean, I've been a Christian since 1997 and I think we, we, we long together for that, that relationship of faith, but what we also long for ultimately is to see Christ face to face, you know, not, not through a glass dimly, but face to face. That's where that longing is. It's because as Lewis would say, we were made for another world. We're made for another world. And that's that longing. Uh, you're not defective. You are sanctified. And one day by Christ Jesus, by the power of his Holy spirit, you'll be glorified. And that's what we long for in there. So just wanted to encourage you. I really appreciate that. And what you say about mm -hmm. longing, I mean, it has been something I've drawn a lot of comfort in. I've been reading a lot of John Owen. I mean, I've been, one of the things I've been doing is kind of rediscovering the Puritans now that, now that I see that they're focused on Jesus. <laughs> I, as someone who thought I knew a lot about the Puritans and teach them and all this, I, let's put that in the category of embarrassing opinions. But, I can just... But, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, Owen Owen talks about, you know, I, some of the, what he says is intimidating to me be, because he's describing a, a sense of assurance that I don't have, but he talks about the sense of longing and, and desire and uh, what he calls uh, spiritual mindedness. And it has given me comfort because I think, well, I, I don't, I might not have this kind of when I hear the, the lovely women in my Bible study say, you know, God really showed up or I really felt the presence of God in this moment. I don't have that, but I have the longing and, and I have the sort of magnetism to reading scripture, especially the gospels that I never had before. And I'm like, that is new. Like that is not me. There's nothing rational or sort of scholarly about that. And it also helped me when I was thinking through, well, all of the, kind of atheistic, evolutionary, by, you know, psychology uh, uh, explanations one can offer for religious behavior. The, the most glaring, I mean, there's, there are a lot of flaws in, in that account I've come to see, but maybe the most glaring one is that there's no good account for that feeling of longing, that yeah. feeling of, of connecting with this in intelligence beyond us. And that, that is something I hang on to when, I, when I'm feeling like I'm I'm just uh, like, is my conversion real? I don't meet people who converted by reading a lot of footnotes. Maybe my, <laughs> maybe I'm wrong about all of this. I, I hang on to that. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, there's a scene at the end of, of Field of Dreams where the skeptical brother of the wife, all this, you know, they go through this traumatic experience and suddenly he sees. And he's like, well, when did all these ballplayers just show up? I'm imagining you reading the Puritan saying, wait, when did all this Jesus show up? <laughs> when did all of this appear? Where did this come from? How did I miss this all those years? And that's that's the way it works. I mean, that, that's the way it is in the Bible. How, how could the disciples have been so confused? 
how could how could the family members of Jesus have been so confused? And yet, once I was blind, now I see. That's the paradigm that we're working with here. So I just I just love imagining that. And uh, I mean, do you think your students um, experience you differently as a teacher? Well, only, I mean, I, I don't, my, my policy is to not say anything about my personal, and this has always been my policy. Sure, it? yeah. I don't say anything about my personal views in the context of like a big lecture course, but if I get that question, I say, well, come to office hours. Yeah. And in the context of office hours and a conversation, I always tell them whatever they want to know. Uh, but, you know, it's too early to, to say um, kind of what the consequences will be. I guess I've already been really s- surprised and excited about the opportunities for a slightly different kind of mentorship. I mean, there is inherent, whatever your metaphysics, if you are a professor, there is a pastoral dimension to your job. So, I mean, I think I've long, um, you know, talked with students and and tried to mentor them in the big life questions. But now there's this category of of mentoring uh, that I can do. This is a way I can be useful um, with students who are investigating Christianity or, or struggling with their faith commitments. And it's exciting to find that I can, this is an insight I've had about evangelism, right? That oh. it's not like this special category of, of aggressive argument. It's just telling people about this crazy yeah. thing that happened to me yeah, and that that's actually evangelism. Yeah. Um, and so that has changed. I don't, I don't really see this, altering the way I teach or, or write. I mean, I, I was, before I became a Christian, invested in helping my students or, or my readers, whoever the audience is, understand worldviews that are not their own. And, and that doesn't mean you have to turn off your own kind of critical right. judgment and, and, and your own moral right. uh, framework. But f- your first job before you activate that is, is to try to understand what the world is like from this perspective of another human. And, and also in my, in my teaching, I've always tried to take advantage of moments where I can sh- point out to students how a believer's account of a historical event comes alongside and is different from, although not mutually exclusive with a non-believing scholar's interpretation. You know, when we talk about the Great Awakening, we talk about, you know, here's how Jonathan Edwards understood what was happening in Northampton. Here are some of the kind of theories that scholars have offered about the way that the uh, economics and and the the kind of the cultural and political moment uh, perhaps set the stage for that. And if you are a Christian, these two things are not mutually exclusive. You can absolutely investigate them both and take them both seriously. And, and so that's, that's going to remain something I'm committed to doing. Um, so I, but, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm still learning what, what all of this means. And I do, I am aware that there is this um, kind of maybe double standard uh, in, in how we judge the question of, of bias and objectivity and Part of how I scan to readers in secular magazines has always been as the sort of sympathetic outsider who right. has this kind of baffling interest in conservative Christians, but she's not one of them, so we can kind of trust her. And uh, that that takes on a different cast, you know, now that I have, what, gone native, <laughs> I guess. And I, you know, I... 
I had a very interesting <laughs> conversation with my editor at the New York Times. My last article for them was about miracles and about efforts to prove, uh, scientifically demonstrate claims of divine healing. And the article is not in, in no way personal. I don't say anything about myself. It's not, yeah. not my style. He said, as we were going back and forth about the drafts, he said, you know, you, you really should, you'll have to say at some point that you believe this stuff now. Hmm. And I said, well, that's interesting. If I were an atheist, would you, <laughs> would you ask me to make it clear to readers that right. I think all of this is, is hallucination right. and that those are my presuppositions? <laughs> and he, he paused and said, uh, well, I, think, I think I would, but it, I, think the, I think my question gave him pause. And then, yeah. and then he later re reversed himself and decided he agreed with me that it, this, the piece was not about me and, and, and I, I, didn't, I shouldn't put myself into it and that wasn't necessary. And, and the way I saw it, I was simply presenting this reporting that has nothing to do with the author's presuppositions. So I don't know. I, I hope I get to the point where I can, I can talk openly about these things when it's appropriate and I keep them off the table when they're distracting, yeah. but I'm just fumbling my way along. I don't really know what it's going to look like. <laughs> well, I was thinking, Molly, not so much necessarily about the, the content of your teaching, but simply your, your, your passion, the, the, the emotional dimensions to it, because Obviously, anybody watching this or listening to this can tell what a gifted teacher you are. And yet I see so often with, with people who come to faith, they may or may not recognize that their, their countenance changes, their attitude changes. There is an evident joy. And so that's part of what I wonder about with students is they just they wonder and yeah, they probably do just perceive differences in you. Of course, you often will have students for just one semester or another, so that's hard for them to be able to track, but no doubt that's something that, that people uh, will see in your life. Um, well, I knew, Molly, to set aside 90 minutes. You warned me to set aside a good bit of time to talk, and I, I think everybody's been blessed by it. Um, I have a feeling we've got another 90 minutes ahead with just some of the directions you've hinted at here. But I do want to give you one last opportunity, a question here. Um, why do you want people to know your story? I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk it through with a, a seasoned Christian like you, uh, because as I think I said at the outset, I. I still can't believe that it happened. I think I have the self-serving motive of hoping that sharing my story with your listeners will introduce me to a few more Christian friends. I, I've made a few really important Christian friends over the past year, but I still feel isolated. I, I'm still looking for people who can mentor me um, because, you know, in, in some ways I... I bring, I bring to my new Christian identity a, a lot of a certain kind of knowledge, but it, it is only, a, it's a very narrow kind of knowledge. I, you know, I wrestled with uh, the question of, you know, whether to talk publicly about my conversion for some months. Um, I'm uncertain about, you know, how it would be perceived, especially by, you know, secular people. Um, but and while I'm still a little bit wary in some contexts, I've decided to stop overthinking it. And when people ask me what happened, to, to, to tell them and to trust, to trust not, not just in sort of in divine providence, but also to, to trust in the general good, goodness. I mean, 
I shouldn't say goodness. I'm a good Calvinist. I believe we're all terribly depraved and, and all that. Absolutely. But th- to trust in people's judgment, right? And that, and that I, the best policy is to just be candid and, and honest and it'll all work out. And I, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't worry about overly much anyway, about how people do or do not hear parts of, of my story. I should just, I should just tell the story. And I do think it's helpful, especially to younger Christians in academia or, you know, graduate students who are kind of investigating Christianity and are uncertain about it. I, I feel a burden, you know, as a, as a tenured professor with relative job security, I feel a burden to bring my whole self. And and, and that doesn't mean I don't recognize that, uh, you know, there are, there are times when it's appropriate in the context of a secular public university to, to talk about faith, but then there are many contexts where it's, it's not. Um, and that's a whole separate conversation we could have. But um, I, I've just decided that the policy of honesty and openness is, is the best one for everybody involved. And plus it's super interesting. I just, I love, I love talking about this, these questions of the process of how, how a person changes her mind, right? It's very rare in life. Forget the specific religious context, any context. It's so rare to truly change your mind about something. It is a crazy experience. It is, it's bewildering. Uh, and I, I, I just, I'm hungry to talk about that. And I'm hungry to just to be able to talk and talk publicly and write publicly about some of these theological questions not giving up my my historical and journalistic work uh, by any means. And so that entails speaking honestly about and openly about my own convictions. Well, I know, Molly, this is one of the things that I wanted to talk about, but we'll get to that in our next 90 minutes there about some of the dynamics of academic freedom and viewpoint diversity and whatnot. But it's one of the things that I've observed for a long time is that Simultaneously, I can understand every bit of the agony and difficulty of bringing your whole self as a religious believer, as a born-again Christian, into that place. At the same time, it's also a self-fulfilling prophecy. The less honest you are, the worse that it gets, not just for you, but also for everyone else, everyone else who might share those same beliefs or even their own beliefs that are different, that they also don't feel safe to be able to talk through. So, um, well, Molly, I, this has been a joy um, to see the joy of the Lord in your face, to hear it in your voice, uh, to be able to hear that story, to be able to revel in God's delicious ironies <laughs> in so many different ways. I, I just feel a somewhat uniquely positioned to be able to celebrate it with you uh, because of um, just some of those parallel dimensions uh, to our lives. And uh, But more than anything else, just to be able to celebrate God's grace in your life and to remember that in our scholarship and in our writing and in our uh, teaching, our investigating, you've just done such a good job of taking us back to the basics. Like, what's it all about? It's about Jesus. God become man, raised from the dead, um, it, took our place on that cross, but triumphed over death in that resurrection, ascended into heaven and sits now interceding on our behalf. Man, that's just what it's all about. So 
through all the inquiries, through all the agonizing, um, through all the awkwardness, thanks for testifying to God's grace, Mom. Thank you for, for giving me a, a chance to, to fumble my way through it. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.